Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. Thank you, Jamie. Daddy's a baby. Soon we'll get mommy to sing with us. That'd be a good thing. <laughs> I'll pay for that one. <laughs> My bubbling brown sugar has a wonderful voice. <laughs> well, praise the Lord. Um, indeed, I remember as a child singing that song in church, and I said, Mama, what's a wretch? She said, you. <laughs> you a wretch, boy. <laughs> well, was that the truth? <laughs> um, I thank my pastor 
Terry for the opportunity to open God's Word. Thank God for the Word being exposited here. Uh, I can't say that enough. Cannot say that enough. We, uh, we have a tremendous blessing here. Tremendous blessing. And that the Word is faithfully exposited here. And uh, a lot of churches can't say that. You know, there's a movement out there now called the Emerging Church. I don't know if you're aware of it, but get aware of it in a hurry. Uh, it is a postmodern thing that says, you know, pre-modernism says that truth was divine and given by divine means. Modernism, modernity, says that it elevates man's, man's mind becomes the basis of truth. And then postmodernism, uh, this is a, a postmodern type thing that's out there that says that, well, you know, we really can't know absolute truth. And, uh, you know, it says, it, 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 it propounds a false humility. It says, oh, I'm too humble to say that I know what the truth is. Uh, so we really can't know the truth, and it, it, it's, it's submerged in mysticism rather than absolute truth. I thank God that that he wrote his book down for us that we don't have to guess and we can know what his truth is. Uh, take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn to Psalm, Psalm chapter 23 will be our text, but if you would start with chapter 22 so that we might set the context of the psalm. And while you're turning there, I want to thank the Lord for Mark and Cheryl, uh, we were over at their place here a week or so ago and had some, some fine Perry County fellowship. Uh, it's been a while since I've been to Perry County, uh, but it was, it was awesome, awesome fellowship, and she is an awesome cook. That was a feed, serious, serious feed. You know, and we had great fellowship, and then we fellowshiped over the food, and uh, and, and had great fellowship afterward, and it was just a wonderful time. Thank you, Mark and Cheryl. I hate to see you go, but, but understand. Do understand. Praise the Lord for you. Now, Psalm 23, um, can we stand and, and read that together? Have it on the screen there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there are probably a few passages in Scripture that are more familiar to us uh, and more well-loved than the 23rd Psalm. It has brought great comfort to us, many, many, many of us over the years. And 
most scholars believe that David wrote this psalm during his time in the cave of Adullam where he was hiding out from Saul who was trying to kill him. And there are few people that have walked this earth that understand or experience the, uh, the exigencies and the, the vicissitudes as David. Uh, he knew what it was to have betrayed a monumental sacred trust. He knew what it was to have fallen into deep, deep sin. He knew what it was to have his children rebel. Uh, there are very few people that had, have lived the human experience to the degree that David did. And here, David, no doubt, was drawn back as he was hiding out to his days as a shepherd, as a shepherd boy. Now, in the context of Psalm 23, you have to start with Psalm 22. And Psalm 22.1 tells us, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, immediately we know, if you're a student of the Bible, that that is the seventh cry or one of the cries of Jesus, depending on which where you put them. They're not in any particular order in the gospel, but you find that that is the cry of Jesus from the cross. So we start to immediately know that here we have a foreshadowing of Christ at least a thousand years before he came to earth. Look down at um, verse 16. In verse 16 of Psalm 22, it says, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. They pierced my hands and my feet. And, and this is a very, very strange statement, seeing that it originated in a Jewish society that had no knowledge of or practice of crucifixion at this time at all. No knowledge or practice of crucifixion. And yet, here is God foreshadowing the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. On the cross, they pierced my hands and my feet. And then in verse 18, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The very thing that the enemies of Jesus did as he hung on the cross. You know, the typical Jew in that day wore five articles of clothing. They had the headpiece, the girdle, an inner shirt or skirt, sandals, and a vesture. How many were involved in the deed? How many Roman soldiers were involved in the deed? Anybody know? Four. Four. Now, if he wore five articles of clothing and there were four, that tells you something, how technically accurate this is. This gives you a picture of Christ hanging on the cross that is more comprehensive than that in any of the Gospels. More comprehensive. You see, if there were four in the deed, involved in the deed, hey, Marcellus, you take the sandals. Claudius, you take the inner shirt. Uh, Joe, you take the, the girdle. And, and I'll take the headpiece. Oh, but then there's the vesture, that one-piece outer garment. Oh, well, that's too nice to just tear up and separate. Hey, why don't we shoot craps over that? And this is the very thing that the enemies of Jesus did as he hung on the cross. Now, do you think the Romans said, well, where's that verse? 
No. <laughs> no, God presided over this. And <clears throat> the very thing that happened as Jesus hung, they're dying. And look down at verse 31 of Psalm 22. Verse 31 <clears throat> says, They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, and that speaks of gospel advance during our age, during the church age, that he has, NAS says that he has performed it or performed this. But if you look in the original Hebrew, it's the word asa. It is the word that says finished. Finished. The very thing that Jesus said hanging on the cross. It's finished. What I'm doing here cannot be undone. It need not be redone. It cannot be repealed. It need not be repeated. It's absolutely perfect. Finished. So there's little doubt as to the, the theme of Psalm 22. It pictures a great portion of our redeeming history here. Now flip over to Psalm 24, and we'll get the other bracket for 23. Psalm 24, <clears throat> look down at verse 10. Psalm 24, 10 says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So here you see that word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, there, and it is again describing the Lord Jesus Christ. So Psalm 23, 22, 23, and 24 form a distinctive unit, and they actually form a running commentary on much of our redemptive history. In Psalm 22, he's seen as the road-paving, redeeming substitute for sinners. In Psalm 23, he's pictured as the risen sponsor of the saved. And then in Psalm 24, he's pictured as the reigning sovereign over everything. So Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are actually a unit uh, that really give us a great picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Psalm 23, you'll notice in the first verse there, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. And this is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. And the word Lord there is spelled with all capital letters. And there are three different ways that the, way, the word Lord is spelled in Scripture, and all of them mean something different. It's spelled with all lowercase letters, and that is the word, uh, a term of endearment or respect, sir. Uh, one capital letter and, and the balance of them lowercase is Adonai, the powerful God, the able God, the available God. And here we have Jehovah, the word Jehovah, distinctly the timeless name of God. It is where we get our word Yahweh, and actually Yahweh is not a word. Hello? Yahweh is not a word. Yahweh was a symbol. You see, the Jews believed that God's name was so holy that in many, many instances or most circumstances, they would not even call his name. So they would, and it had no vowels in it at all. It was all consonants, Y-H-W-Y-H, Yahweh. Uh, it was a symbol. You know, I've 
drive a Ford truck and have for many years. Praise the Lord. And, <laughs> and when you see that oblong-shaped emblem or oval-shaped emblem, and it's blue, and there's a little pony running across there. Nobody has to tell you what type of truck that is. That's a Ford. If all you saw was that emblem, you'd know that that is a Ford. Well, that is exactly what this symbol was, the Tetragrammaton. It was a symbol that represented God because they deemed his name too holy to write or speak. Man, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had that kind of reverence for God? You know, we invoke his name on the weirdest things. Oh, my God. <laughs> Not one of us can say we haven't done that. Not one of us. But they considered the name of God so holy that they dare not even speak it. And it is the word Jehovah is made up of a compound of three smaller Hebrew words, and they are all tenses of the I am or to be verb. I am. When God sent Moses to deliver the children of Israel, and Moses said, who shall I say sent me? What did he say? I am. Moses said, excuse me? <laughs> See, I am is an incomplete sentence. I am what? Or I am who? If I just said, I am, your next question would be, I am what? I am who? I am Jim Douglas. I am Ramona's husband. I am Jamie's father. Okay, but God just says, I am. And when Moses asked the question, he said, I am that I am. <laughs> In other words, there's nothing else to compare to me. He's this God who always was, is now, and always will be. Isaiah 50 tells us he inhabits eternity. He is a timeless God and an on-time God. You know, somebody asked, what was he doing before creation? Well, nothing. He didn't have time. <laughs> now, that'll shave your head. But <laughs> he, he created time for our benefit. We're finite creatures. And he's the God that lives in an eternal present. You know? And that's why the Bible never stops to try and explain God. In the beginning, God. What beginning? Whichever beginning you choose. It doesn't matter. He was always there. So the self-existent always is God, is who we're dealing with here. And this pictures that being the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when the word Jehovah is used in conjunction with other words, it gives us a commentary on the nature and character of God. On the nature and character of God. For example, you have Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord my righteousness. Jehovah Makadish, the Lord my sanctifier. And then in verse 1, you have Jehovah Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd. The last part of verse 1. I shall not want Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. In verse 2, you have, he makes me to lie down in green pastures, which is, and the Lord my peace, Jehovah Shalom. You know, when the sheep turns his 
meal into his mattress, he's well satisfied. Well satisfied. And then you have Jehovah Rapha, the Lord my restore. He restores my soul, or Rophe. In verse 4, you have Jehovah Shammah, uh, the Lord my companion, or the Lord who is here, the Lord who is there with me. In verses 5 and 6, we see a picture of Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner, because he fights all my battles. So what you have here at the turning points of this psalm is a running commentary on the nature and character of God by the words that are used here. And for example, Isaiah 40, talking about our God, Isaiah 40, verse 12, if you want to turn there and run your eyes over God's Word. Isaiah 40, verse 12. You know, there's nothing quite like the sound of Bible leaves turning. That's, there's nothing that matches that. If you have it, say amen. amen. If you don't, say wait. <laughs> it's all right. Isaiah 40, verse 12 says, God has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and measured out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Drop down to verse 15. Behold, the nations of the earth are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, God takes up the islands of the sea as a very little thing. That's this great God of ours that we're talking about in Psalm 23. One and the same. Look at verse 11. He, that's this great God, shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather them in his bosom and shall gently lead them that are with young. So back to Psalm 23, this psalm tells us in a wonderful way that this great God who always was, is now, and always will be, and has that kind of power that he considers the mountain the dust of a balance scale. Some of you probably aren't old enough to have seen balance scales. Some of you are. <laughs> uh, but that's how we used to weigh things. Okay? Some of us used to weigh the wrong things with that. But that's how we used to weigh things. <laughs> yeah, there's no halo here. But, <laughs> but that's how we used to weigh things. And it would even weigh the dust. And God, it says, considers the hills of the earth. That includes the Himalayas, uh, you name it, Mount Everest, etc., etc., as the dust on his balance scale. That's this great God that is willing to be to us what a loving eastern shepherd is to his sheep. And there is the privilege of personal faith in a personal God. The privilege of personal faith in a personal God. This great God. This great God who flung out galaxies and universes and, and all that ever was, all that is, and all that ever will be, and sustains all of that, hung it on nothing and told it to stay there. And we can't fully understand that. We think we can, but 
you know, science thumbs its fist and say, we now know about the atom. And splitting the atom gives us certain advantages. And God knew about the atom before science ever drew a, a breath. And he made all that you see out of nothing, spoken into existence. This same great God offers us to be the privilege of being his sheep, and he is our shepherd. Now, you know, that's really not a flattering picture, if you know anything about sheep. I'm a farm boy, raised on a farm. We had cows, we had sheep too, okay? And, and, and anytime God wants to describe his children in Scripture, he always, and he uses the animal kingdom as an analogy, he always describes us as sheep, as sheep. And some of us probably don't know what a desperate picture that is. <laughs> desperate, desperate picture. Um, <laughs> let, let me describe sheep for you. Like I said, I'm, I'm a farm boy. I'm well-versed in sheepology. I don't, I don't miss them. <laughs> I don't miss them at all. Cows either. But <laughs> a sheep is the most dependent animal on earth. The most dependent animal on earth. If a sheep gets his head downhill and gets down in a, a depression, he can't get up. Can't get up. You see in the shepherd's staff that has that crook in it, that's what that's for. It's for him to reach and get that sheep and help him up because the sheep can't get up. He carries that heavy wool on him, and, and the longer the wool gets, the harder it is for that sheep to be managed because when he goes to get up, sometimes his, the very wool itself holds him down. He can't get up. Sheep's a very, very weak animal, very, very weak animal. Uh, <clears throat> and incidentally, wool in the, in the Bible is in typology a representation of sin. Don't make that any argument. <clears throat> but a sheep is a very dependent animal. Uh, you have to make everything very, very accessible for the sheep, or he cannot serve himself in any way. Very, very dependent animal. And you have to move him around from pasture to pasture, or else he'll eat in the same spot and destroy all the foraging in that area and, and just literally destroy the land. Literally destroy the land in that one area. And there'll be little sheep trails up and down the hill here, and over there things will be plushed. <laughs> just, you know, because sheep are a very, very dependent animal. They need someone to care for them. Now, this is a picture of you and a picture of me. It's how God describes his children. Next, a sheep is a, the most defenseless animal on earth. A dog can bite. Cats can scratch. A horse can run away. A mule can kick. And a skunk, well, you know, <laughs> Lord, what a skunk can do to you. <laughs> he can mess you up. Okay, anybody ever been sprayed by a skunk? I have, yeah. <laughs> Not a wonderful, happy time. But, uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but every other animal, a chameleon, can blend in with the scenery. Every other animal has some means of defense except a sheep. His legs are so weak, he can't run. If you ever watch a sheep run, he just kind of wobbles along because his legs are weak. His eyesight is poor. doesn't see well. Uh, Terry, I'm describing me now. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, 
seemed like a lot of that started to happen after 50. But his eyesight is poor, doesn't see well. Uh, his teeth, his jaws are so weak, he can't even bite off the grass. Many of you have seen the, the Westerns. I was a big fan of the Western movies as a kid and still, still really enjoy a good Western. And, and, you know, there was always a feud between the cattle herders and the sheep herders. Well, let me tell you what that was about. The sheep destroy the foraging because their jaws are so weak they can't bite the grass off, so they bite down on it and pull it up by the roots. And that's why the cattlemen hated them. It wasn't just because they were sheep. It was because of the way the sheep do their business. <laughs> the sheep destroy all the foraging, all the pasture land. It's a very, very defenseless animal. That's why you'll never see a sheep as a team mascot. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way. You, you know, you got the Buffalo Bills, this big beast of a bison. You, you've, got, you've got the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. You know, they get, if you've ever been swarmed, you know what that does. That hurts. Okay. You've got the Kentucky Wildcats. You've got the L Cardinals. They can fly away. The Penn State Nittany Lions. Okay. But the New York Sheep? No way. <laughs> Not going to happen. Because sheep cannot defend themselves. And all around the hills and the mountains, when the sheep are out there grazing, you've got lions and bears, and they're all around going, Woo! <laughs> sheep burgers and sheep ribs and sheep slaw and mayo McCheese sheep and that sheep stuff because I'm going to get me one of those sheep because sheep cannot defend themselves. Now, that's us. <laughs> we laugh, but that's us. That's exactly the way God describes us. The only defense the sheep has is by staying close to the shepherd. Now, I was riding along uh, on an airplane. It seemed like I do that a lot. And, and a chance to look down and, and, and see a magazine and just pulled it up and was kind of thumbing through it. And it said there was an article there that said the sheep killed the wolves. So that drew my interest, and I wanted to know how that happened, because usually when the sheep encounter wolves, the wolves win, <laughs> okay, every time. And it, it went on to say that in Australia many years ago, there were, there were millions of wolves and only a few sheep, and now there are millions of sheep and few wolves because the sheep killed the wolves. And said so they killed the wolves by simply staying close to the shepherd. Now that's a picture of you, and that's a picture of me. You see, the sheep is, is vulnerable to any enemy that would destroy it without the work of the shepherd. Now, next, the sheep is a very dirty animal. You know, we see our Christian pictures of beautiful white sheep. You know, they're just as pristine and ink wrong, but thanks for playing. It's not that way at all. <laughs> They're very dirty animals. They have this heavy wool, and it catches everything, sticks and twigs and, and, and urine and offal and mud and you name it. It catches all of that, and they walk around with that. <laughs> See, sometimes our Christian pictures do us a disservice, <laughs> and that's one of, the, one of the occasions because the sheep's a very, very dirty animal. It's a picture of you and a picture of me as God's children. Next, the sheep is a very dumb animal. Now, I, did, I started to put less intelligent on there. It would have ruined the alliteration. It really wouldn't have given you the message. <laughs> 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 
Sheep's a very, very dumb animal. Now, I know, you know, some of you have a Ph.D. and a D.D.D. and an E.D.D. It don't matter if you have a Ph.D., a D.D.D., an E.D.D. or a G.E.D., okay? God describes you this way. A sheep is a very dumb animal, a very dumb animal. <laughs> you know, Aubrey Johnson was the head of Friends of Wildlife in the Southwest United States for many, many years, and read an article by him, and I meant to bring it, but, but you know, my memory is what I forget with. But it, it basically says that if you took all the brains of all the sheep in the world and put them in one animal, you just might have a reasonably intelligent animal. That's not very hopeful. <laughs> it seems a very dumb animal. It just is. And is it ever? There was a, a, an Australian pastor, you know, there they import sheep from New Zealand and they have, they bring them in on ships and, and they had this load of, ship come in, uh, load of sheep come in one day on a ship and this pastor went down to the dock and asked the owner if he could experiment with no danger to the sheep and he gave his permission. And, you know, they lower a chute down, a ramp that comes off the ship that gets them down to, to the land, and it's got rails on the side of it so the, the stupid sheep can't fall off. And this pastor took a rod and ran it through the rails across the ramp just about knee-high to the sheep just to see what they'd do. The first sheep came down, jumped over it. Second one came down, jumped over it. Third one came down, jumped over it, fourth and fifth and so on. And after about 15 of them had jumped over the rod, he just reached and pulled the rod out, see what would happen. Every sheep thereafter jumped at exactly the same spot. <laughs> Sheep's a very dumb animal. And he's, a, he's open and vulnerable to anything that would restore him. Now, that's a picture of man apart from the revelation of God and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we have absolutely no intelligence that God can accept. None. None whatsoever. <clears throat> so a sheep is a very dumb animal. And, you know, you would think that as helpless as a sheep is, that the sheep would worry. You would think that he would worry. You know, dinosaurs have died out, but they're still sheep. <laughs> Do you know why sheep don't have to worry? Because there's a man there in the midst of the sheep with a rod and a staff. He's called the shepherd. And he manages the sheep. He provides for the sheep. He knows that I'm dumb. He knows that I'm distracted. He knows that I'm disenfranchised. He knows that I'm dirty. He knows that I have all of these deficiencies. So he steps right in and he provides for me as his sheep. You are not here this morning because you are so tough. You are not here because you're so intelligent. As human intelligent as you may be. You are not here because of any of those things. You are here because the shepherd has managed you even before you came to him. He was watching over you. The Lord is my shepherd. Is my shepherd. 
And he provides for me. Let's look at other provisions afforded the person who exercises personal faith in God. Very quickly, Philippians 4.19. You former Baptists will like this. This is a Bible drill. <laughs> Philippians 4.19. Philippians 4, 19, Paul says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, here you have several things. He said, my God, that's the source of the provision, shall supply. Not may supply, but shall supply. That is the surety of the provision. All your needs. That's the sufficiency of the provision. Now, notice he didn't say all your wants. He said all of your needs. The sufficiency of provisions. According to his riches in glory. Now, if I gave you a dollar, I would be giving you out of my supply. But if I gave you a thousand dollars... I'd be giving you according to. There's a big difference between those two. And here we're told that God will supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Now that's good news. That's good news. In Christ Jesus, and that is the storehouse of provision. So, you know, so many of us get busy playing the what if game. You know, what if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if? What? And we lay awake at night saying, what if? What if? What? Well, what if it does? The Lord is my shepherd, and my welfare is his responsibility. Now, if you act stupidly and irresponsibly, that's your problem. He'll let you sponsor that. <laughs> but the Lord is my shepherd. You know, Psalm 25, 15 says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and he shall pluck my feet out of the net. What's our tendency when we get our feet caught? As we look down at our feet, or we look down at the net. But the psalmist says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and my feet are his responsibility. Because the Lord is my shepherd. Notice back in Psalm 23, verse 1 says, I shall not want. And that really, really, really goes against the grain of our society, doesn't it? I shall not want. You know, <clears throat> in our society, our society is driven by making you think that you need everything you want. It's driven by that. Our economy is driven by making you think that you need everything you want. And that's not true at all. Here, David, though he was hiding out at the peril of his life, says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want in a probably damp, cold, dark cave somewhere. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Pastor was talking about that just a couple of weeks ago. 
Our society is driven to make you think, you know, drink what's behind this label. You want this. And surely you want this. And our society is driven by that. Our economy is driven by that. Here we're told the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want by a man who by all rights, by our standards, had plenty to want. Plenty to want. He said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's like the little girl said, the Lord is my shepherd, and I have all I want. All right. Verse 2 tells me, I shall not lack for provision, for provision. said, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. Verse 3 tells us that I shall not lack for progress. Verse 4 tells us that I shall not lack for his presence in times of great crisis in my life. Verse 5 tells me that I shall not lack for preservation. And verse 6 tells me that I shall not lack for eternal permanence when this life is over. Another outline that you may look at, verse 2 tells us that a person who walks with God, with him as a shepherd, will never lack for adequate spiritual refreshment. Adequate spiritual refreshment. said, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now remember the setting in which this was written in Israel, which is a normally arid setting with very little vegetation. He said, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Verse 3 tells us we will not lack for adequate spiritual renewal. said, he restores my soul. See, sheep are normally very early risers. And when it's hot, they really tire quickly early in the day. And a shepherd normally causes the sheep to lie down in quiet and reserve their energy to help them make it through those hot and arid days. says, he restores my soul. Verse 4 says that I shall not lack for spiritual relationship, no matter what the crisis that should arise. Look at what it says. It says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, it is wonderful that this part of the psalm comes in the middle and not at the beginning or at the end. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice death is not a stopping place for the Christian. It's not a stopping place for the believer. It's that which elevates him into the very presence of the Lord. So it's not a stopping place. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And notice something else. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Notice the subtle change in pronouns there. Up to this point, he's been talking about the Lord. He leads me. He does this. He does that. But when it comes to the valley of the shadow of death, now the pronoun changes, and he's not no longer talking about the Lord. He's talking to the Lord. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I shall fear no evil because you are with me. Never will the Lord be more personal and more close to the believer than when that time comes for him to cross that river of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice this, death is a shadow. Has no substance. The substance was exhausted on Jesus. 
He took the sting out of death, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 tells us. Death is just a shadow. Now, a shadow of a bear can frighten you, and the shadow of a gun can frighten you, and the shadow of a wolf can frighten you, but no one has ever been harmed by a mere shadow. And here the psalmist describes death as a shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Verse 5 tells us that we'll not lack for adequate spiritual resources since the Lord is our shepherd. He says, Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, again, here you have all of these predators around these helpless sheep that want to devour the sheep. And yet, here the psalmist says, You prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And down in verse 5, he said, Thou anointest my head with oil. Thou anointest my head with oil. That is a picture of the sheep being comforted. You see, sheep get, in the summertime, they have these things that they call nasal flies. Okay? <laughs> Not a wonderful happy time for the sheep. They... They, you know, get up in the sheep's nose, and, and I've seen sheep just go and bang their head against the tree, you know, because they're tormented by these, these nasal flies. And that's why you've heard of sheep dip. That's what that's about, is they, today they take the sheep and dip him in this tank, uh, this, this solution that kills all of that and prevents that. But old school, and we were old school, old school, they take a... a uh, a mix, daddy would mix up sulfur and grease and take that solution and just smear it all around the sheep's nose and his head and that would prevent the nasal flies. You know, because if you had one sheep that got nasal flies, sheep love to rub their heads together. They love to get fellowship. Yeah. Huh? Man, that ought to tell us something about the way we ought to be. Now, this is supposed to be a picture of us. Sheep love fellowship, and they get, and they rub their little heads together, you know. <laughs> you know. Just great fellowship. Well, if one of them has nasal flies, he'll spread that to the rest of the herd. So this is a picture of the shepherd taking time to take each individual sheep and take that, mix up that mixture, and rub that all around his head and his nose to keep that sheep from being tormented by the nasal flies. The Lord is my shepherd. And it's his responsibility to comfort me in this way. And then it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So it tells me in verse 6 that I shall not lack for adequate spiritual residence at the end of my life here on earth. Someone called goodness and mercy the shepherd's two sheepdogs that follow along behind. See, here in the West, we drive our sheep from behind, but the Eastern shepherd leads his sheep. Leads his sheep. And, and he just calls, and they come. Jesus said in John 10, toward 28 and following, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. 
Those are tests of salvations. Those are tests of salvation. Do you hear the Lord's voice? Now, not audibly like you're hearing me. If you do, run. <laughs> he doesn't speak to us that way. I mean, I hear people all the time, you know. Well, you know, the Lord spoke to me, and I'm like, what chapter and verse? How'd that happen? <laughs> what did he give you? <laughs> so if you hear him audibly, just take off running, because that's not him. <laughs> okay. But he said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And the word follow is present tense continuous. They are currently following me. If you are not currently following the Lord, you have absolutely no evidence that you're one of his sheep. Absolutely. I said, well, you know, he got saved 10 years ago, and then he got hurt in the church, and, you know, he hasn't really been back. Eh, wrong. Thanks for playing. You're going to tell me God's going to be a silent partner in his child's life for 10 years? Have I ever been a silent partner in your life, doll? No. <laughs> it's not the way it works. <laughs> it's not at all the way it works. <laughs> and our Heavenly Father is no different. He's not going to be a silent partner in his child's life for 10 years. No, that person was never saved. He didn't get saved and walk away. Now, some of you want to argue about that, and we can get out the Bible and get chapter and verse later. <laughs> but he's not going to be a silent partner in his child's life for 10 years. No way. No way. I said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Mercy has to do with, or goodness has to do with my supply, and mercy has to do with my sin. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. You've heard people say, well, you know, in my father's house were many mansions. Because that's King James translation, Roger. <laughs> and, and, and I'm one of those King James children. That's what I memorized. I was so glad when Brother Terry said that we could memorize King James. <laughs> I was rejoicing over that. But, but the word there is not mansion. The word there is dwelling places. In my father's house. I don't want to be his neighbor. I got a room in the father's house for all eternity. For all eternity. Finally and quickly, the priority of personal faith in a personal God. We looked at the privilege, the provisions, and now the priority of personal faith in a personal God. If you scan down across the psalm, you'll see that Personal pronouns such as I or my or me or he appear 27 times. Ten of them have to do with God. Seventeen of them have to do with me as the sheep. In John 10, 11, Jesus is called the good shepherd. And he sa it says the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And it's actually the Greek word hooper means over the sheep. In other words, that's a picture of the shepherd stretching himself over the sheep and the attack falls on the shepherd and not the sheep. That's John 10 and 11. He's called the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, 20, he's called the great shepherd. The great shepherd who gives his life. He's resurrected to give his life to the sheep to save us from the pollution and practice of sin. And in 1 Peter 5, 4, he's called the great shepherd. And we see him there returning 
for his sheep, to save us from the very presence and possibility of sinning. So Jesus is called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. But what difference would that make? How great he is, how wonderful he is, how much he cares, how much he provides. What difference, what possible difference could that make if I cannot say the Lord is my, my shepherd, my shepherd. If you're here today and you can't say that the Lord is my shepherd, I urge you to settle that issue today. All right, lessons for our life. The Lord Jesus Christ is eternal, omnipotent, and omnipresent, and willing to be to the one who trusts him what an eastern shepherd is to his sheep. What a loving eastern shepherd is to his sheep, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is willing to be to you and me as we follow him. You know, the eastern shepherd, they did an experiment once with five flocks of sheep. And they let them all intermingle. And then they, the shepherds all went to different points around this massive intermingled herd. And each one in turn took turns calling for his sheep. And at the end, not one sheep was misplaced. Not one. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice and another they shall not follow. Number two, as his sheep, the Christian's only source of hope and help is to walk close to the shepherd. You know, <clears throat> in Luke 15, you have the, the story of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost sheep. And in that parable, it says that shepherd went out and found that sheep. And when he found it, where did he put it? On his shoulders. Plural, shoulders. And the practice was... In the east, when a sheep would get lost, the shepherd found that sheep, he'd turn him over on his back, tie his front feet together, his back feet together, hoist him over his shoulder, bring them around, tie him right here. Now if that sheep gets lost, it's the shepherd's fault. That's a picture of our security. Our security. And something else. If that sheep kept wandering away, the next time he'd break his leg. Hello? <laughs> the next time he'd break his leg. And now he had to carry that sheep everywhere they went. That's the care of our shepherd. Number three, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Are you currently, right now, in a meaningful, loving way following Jesus? And last, if the Lord is not your shepherd, you're in serious danger of all the forces in life that would destroy you. To be self-managed is to be self-damaged. Come to Jesus Christ today.